You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. When I started teaching high school back in 1990, I had a student come up to me and ask me if they could borrow a nickel of all things. Even back then, five cents didn't buy very much, so I questioned what he needed the nickel for. That's when he surprised me with the response that he intended to use it to make a call at the payphone outside the school. You see, back then, almost every payphone in the country charged 25 cents to make a call, but not in Chatham, New York. All the payphones in the area were operated by a local telephone company named Taconic Telephone, and they took great pride in the fact that they were the only company still charging a nickel to make calls. As you could probably guess, Taconic Telephone was eventually sold and that was the end of the nickel phone calls. Of course, in our modern cell phone age, payphones themselves have become nearly obsolete. Good luck finding one. But back in the days when telephones were ubiquitous, an employee of the telephone company needed to drive around and empty the coins out of each and every payphone. All these coins were then taken back to an office to be counted before ultimately being turned over to a bank to enrich Ma Bell's pockets. Today's story begins on Saturday, September 23rd of 1950. That's when 30-year-old Miami, Florida police detective John Rezik and his 22-year-old wife Eleanor Jane got into a wicked fight. So John went off to work while Jane decided to spend the night with her close friend, that's 18-year-old Rita Orr. While she was there, Rita told Jane that $150 had been stolen from her cedar chest and even more had been taken from her mom. Rita suspected that her 21-year-old sister-in-law, Marie Orr, had stolen the cash to run off with her boyfriend. Jane told Rita that she needed to call the police to let them know that the money had been stolen. And without any thought as to the consequences, early the next morning, that's exactly what Rita did. When West Miami Safety Director I. Raymond Mills arrived at the Orr home, he found absolutely no evidence of a break-in. He suspected that this was some sort of inside job, but he did agree to investigate. He promised to return that afternoon with a fingerprint expert to comb over the supposed crime scene. Meanwhile, that same afternoon, Miami police stopped a car that was driven by Marine Sergeant William Albert. Inside, they found a strong box that contained thousands of dollars. Now keep in mind, this is 1950. That's a lot of money. 
He explained to the officers that his fiancée, Billy Ruth McNabb, who just happened to be Marie Orr's sister, had asked him to remove the box from the Orr house shortly after Officer Mills had left the premises. So Mills drove over to McNabb's house on Southwest 7th Street and questioned her as to where all this money came from. She immediately spilled the beans and placed nearly all the blame on her sister Marie. The next morning, as Marie and her friend Betty Corrigan returned from an out-of-town trip, investigators were there to greet them. The women were then escorted to the nearby Coral Gables police station, where all of the women gave complete confessions. And that's when a gigantic hole in the counting of the coins back at the phone company was uncovered. After the payphone boxes were emptied, the sealed coin boxes were then brought to a counting room at Southern Bell, which was located on the ground floor of their main office at 36 Northeast 2nd Street in Miami. Each morning, the women that worked in the counting room would remove the coin boxes from the safe, break the seals, and then feed the coins into an automated counting machine. The women who worked in the counting room realized that the money in these boxes had never, ever been counted, so the phone company really had no clue as to how much was brought in each day. As the women loaded the coins into the counting machines, they would make some of them, let's just say, magically disappear. As Betty Corgan stated to Officer Mills in her confession, quote, It was so easy. There was no way to get caught, so I started taking it too. The girl that was standing up would wait until she got 60 quarters, and then she would roll it in memo paper, and she would put it in her brassiere. She continued, We would carry it out and put it in our pocketbooks. My husband left the car parked at the company. I would take it down and put it in the glove compartment. Now, it's not as if the women weren't being watched. You see, the counting room was part of a much larger office, and there was a large glass panel and a glass door that separated the women from their supervisors. But they would simply stand with their backs to the glass and block the view of the counting machine while one of the women would place a roll of coins into her brassiere. Each $15 roll of quarters was quite heavy. That's 12 and 3 quarter ounces or more than a third of a kilogram each. So as their braziers became weighted down, they really could only carry four or five rolls at a time, each would take a restroom break. It was there that many of the rolls of coins were transferred to the, quote, ample brazier of Billy Ruth McNabb, that's a sister, who was not a phone company employee, and then she carried them out of the facility. McNabb was paid $5 per day for her assistance. The women claim never to have taken more than $150 each day, which may not seem like much, but over the two-year period that they stole the money, they were initially thought by police to have potentially pocketed a total of $100,000. That's about $1 million when adjusted for inflation. The money was used mostly to purchase savings, bonds, clothing, automobiles, and to make payments on their homes. Some of the girls said they were saving up for their weddings. The police ended up arresting 14 people. That included eight women, five of whom were counting room employees, their husbands and boyfriends. Get this, six of those accused were members of the Orr family. The press had a field day with this story. Reporters came up with clever names such as the Bra Bandits, 
the Brazier Girls, the Case of the Clinking Braziers, the Case of the Silver Falsies, and the Bra Swindle. But the name that really stuck was the Brazier Brigade. For a short time, it looked like they may have all gotten off the hook. There was certainly no crime in having a lot of cash, and the phone company wasn't sure how much, if any, money was taken from the phone coin boxes. As a result, Southern Bell District Manager James M. Phillips initially opted not to sign a complaint against the accused. Assistant County Solicitor Michael P. Zeroni said, The only thing we've got is a confession. We can't introduce that until we establish a crime. And we can't establish a crime because there's no way to tell if the money was taken, nor how much. The Broad Girls' lawyers, that's James Rainwater and Harry Prebish, and I should mention their services were paid for in quarters of all things, they decided to use the inability of Southern Bell to figure out how much, if any, money was stolen to their advantage. They instructed their clients to refuse signing the now typed-up confession statements that they had made earlier. Now the girls were claiming their innocence. All of those arrested were then temporarily released into Rainwater's custody. And since the phone company couldn't prove that the money was theirs, it was announced that the girls would file a lawsuit intended to get the estimated $10,000 that had already been recovered back from the police. Rainwater said, quote, That money is the personal property of my clients. Even if it was all in quarters. <laughs> this next part's going to sound even crazier. The next day, Rainwater accompanied the five women as they reported back to work at Southern Bell, the company they robbed. Guards outside the building immediately stopped them, but then Rainwater spoke with officials at the company, and the women were allowed to enter the facility, and they went straight up to James Phillips' office. What do you think happened next? The district manager immediately fired the women, and they left the premises in tears. Shortly after that, the phone company filed formal complaints against six women and two men. Southern Bell claimed that $18,880 had been stolen, although there was no way to know how they came up with that amount. The press speculated that far more had been stolen, but that the phone company had no way of proving it. It was also believed that the other employees had been stealing the coins for many years, but the statute of limitations prevented probing back beyond two years prior. After just one day of freedom, all those now accused were ordered to be rearrested. That's Marie Orr, Rita Orr, Bonnie Hebert, and Betty Corgan. They all worked in the counting room, and they were all charged with grand larceny. Marie's mom, Gladys, and the husbands of Bonnie and Betty were charged with receiving stolen property, while Mrs. Billy Ruth McNabb, she's one that smuggled it out of the facility, she was named as, quote, a principal in the second degree. A couple of days later, Miami Detective John Rizek and his wife, Jane, were also charged since they helped to hide some of the money from the police. Of all those charged, only the three girls who initially confessed to the crime stood trial. That was two of the girls that stuffed their bras with the rolls of coins and the woman who helped smuggle them out of the phone company's building. On November 11, 1950, Marie Orr, Billy Ruth McNabb, and Betty Corrigan all stood before criminal court judge Ben C. Willard. 
It was such a sensational story that the courtroom was packed as defense attorney Rainwater inserted coins into a payphone that he had brought in for demonstration purposes. As the coins fell into the machine, he inserted a bent wire to trip the coin release. All the coins were then dropped into the return slot. He had made his point. The phone company had no way to know how much money was really collected from these machines. But an auditor for the phone company presented data showing a shortfall for money collected on five routes between August 22nd and 23rd of 1950. Long-distance receipts totaled $1,350, but bank deposit slips are initialed by Marie Orr and Betty Corrigan, the only two women working in the counting room at the time, were short by $464.75. And, in a surprising move, the judge allowed the unsigned statements made by the women at the time of their arrest to be admitted as evidence against them. In those confessions, Corrigan admitted to stealing between six dollars and $7,000 over the previous two years, while Orr said she had taken $6,500 over three years. Officer Mills added in his testimony that he had recovered $5,786.90 from their cars and homes. These women didn't stand a chance. It took the jury of six men just 24 minutes to return guilty verdicts for all three of the women. Marie Orr and Betty Corrigan both faced a maximum of five years behind bars, while Billy Ruth McNabb was facing lesser time for aiding and abetting. The three would have to wait six days to find out what their sentence would be. But the judge wasted no time and immediately ordered that the three women and eight other relatives and boyfriends reimburse the phone company for $24,160. That'd be about $240,000 today, so that's not chump change. The court appointed an insurance man named J.S. Turner to locate and collect the assets of those accused, and that included all cash, cars, savings bonds, postal certificates, jewelry, and just about any other valuable property that they owned. On Monday, November 20th, the three women were all sentenced to one year in state prison for their crime. They remained at a prison on bond while their case was appealed, and on August 1st, 1951, the Florida Supreme Court affirmed their convictions, and of course it seemed as if they were now going to prison. But somehow their lawyer managed to convince the governor to give the women not one, not two, but three 60-day reprieves followed by an additional 30 days, and that was until the parole board could hear their case. Their attorneys told the cabinet pardon board that all three women had repaid all the stolen money, and they were now rehabilitated. They were all given conditional pardons and never spent a single day of their one-year sentences in prison. As for the others that have been accused, none served any additional time. Mom Gladys Orr was convicted and given a suspended sentence. But get this, the judge told her she had to leave the state. Another bra smuggler, Bonnie Jean Hebert, pled guilty and received a suspended sentence. Several of the other cases, including those against Bonnie's husband Lawrence and Detective Resick, were dropped. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide.
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Time marches on. You have just listened to the March of Time, the reenactment of memorable scenes from the world's news, prepared and presented by the editors of Time. For the third successive season, Remington Rand enjoys having a part in bringing you the March of Time. As we go on the air this year, we want, first of all, to thank the businessmen of America. Remington Rand sales are running 25% ahead of last year, 65% ahead of the low year of depression. We appreciate this testimonial from the American buying public. Chief reason for increased sales, aside from improved business generally, the helpfulness and energy of more than 2,200 Remington Rand representatives. We hope that through March of Time, you will know these Remington Rand men better. Carefully selected, their business careers have been devoted to studying methods of improving business efficiency. We rely on them to make good our objective. No sale, unless the buyer can use the equipment at a profit. You know what Remington Rand makes. Office typewriters and supplies and duplicating stencils, adding, bookkeeping, and accounting machines, powers punched card accounting, filing and record systems and supplies, together with equipment and portable typewriters. Telephone our local office for a man to advise on your particular requirement. All right, Remington Rand, Buffalo, New York. Is your child equipped with a Remington portable typewriter? Schools open next week, and educators have proved that typewriting improves spelling, composition, even arithmetic. When was the last time you even saw a typewriter? It's not in the office I've been in lately. That commercial for Remington Rand Business Machines is from the August 27th, 1935 episode of March of Time Radio Show, as you heard. The company started as a division of the Remington Arms Company, which was famed for its rifles. And in the late 1800s, the company aggressively diversified into other industries, which included bicycles, sewing machines, which it was very successful at, gas engines, well pumps, and burglar alarms. On March 1, 1873, Remington began production on the machine that would forever change our lives. It was called the Type Writer. That's two words, type and writer with a dash in between. And it was the first device to ever allow a person to type faster than they could write by hand. It was also the first to feature the QWERTY key layout, you know, Q-W-E-R-T-Y that you see on your keyboards today. And that had been developed by Christopher Scholes, one of the machine's three inventors. Love it or hate it, it was the earliest success of Remington typewriters that has forced QWERTY on us for all these years. In 1886, Remington sold their typewriter business and the rights to the Remington name to the Standard Typewriter Manufacturing Company. Standard then changed their name to Remington Typewriters in 1902 before it merged with Rand Cardex Bureau in 1927 to become the Remington Rand Company that you heard in this commercial. Remington Rand ceased to exist in 1955 when the company was acquired by the Sperry Corporation, 
although the name did continue on as a subdivision for many years. After another merger with Burroughs in 1986, the company became the present-day Unisys. As a science teacher here in New York State, I've been very busy recently preparing my ninth grade students for their state readings exam in Earth Science. This requires all of them to have a thorough understanding of the Earth as it orbits that big yellow orb in the sky, you know, that thing we call the sun. So here's today's question of the day for you. Which season is the longest in the Northern Hemisphere? You only have four choices there. I think they're pretty obvious. Well, I asked some of my friends, and here's what they had to say. I'll tell you which one seems to have the longest number of days. Winter. Winter? Uh, winter. I would say summer. Winter. I'm going to say winter. Summer. That last guy that spoke better know the answer. That's because he's the other earth science teacher in my school. He's also the one who got the three musketeers question right in the last podcast. Anyway, was he correct with summer? In fact, he was. As Johannes Kepler was able to prove in 1605 using data obtained from Mars, and he got that from famed astronomer Tycho Brahe, the planets move around the sun in an elliptical path. When the Earth is closest to the sun, the stronger gravitational attraction between the two causes the planet to move faster. And of course, when the Earth is farthest from the sun, we're traveling at our slowest speed. Many people living in the Northern Hemisphere believe that summer occurs because we're closest to the sun, but that is totally false. The seasons are caused by the Earth's tilt of 23.5 degrees on its axis. Which means that we are farthest from the sun and traveling at our slowest speed in summer. It's that slower speed that causes summer to have the most number of days, but not by much. Summer lasts 94 days, spring is 93 days, autumn is 90 days, and the long winters we perceive only last 89 days. Now those numbers are so close simply because the Earth's orbit is very, very close to a circle, has a very small eccentricity. So I guess the question is, why do my summers always seem to be so short while the winters seem to drag on forever every year? In other news, here are a few additional stories that deal with unusual crimes. On March 27, 1906, 10-year-old New York City resident Priscilla Summers was handed a penny by her dad. He asked her to go to the nearby newsstand and buy him a newspaper. And this is where the big bad bully, that's 14-year-old Michael Pettit, comes into the picture. He spotted Priscilla and asked her what she had clenched in her hand. She replied she had a penny and that she was on her way to purchase a newspaper for her dad. Michael generously offered to purchase the paper for her, and when Priscilla declined his offer, he grabbed her by the throat with one hand, and then he pried the penny out of her hand with the other. A policeman heard Priscilla's screams, and he quickly ran up and arrested Michael. The magistrate sentenced the boy to three years in the reformatory for the crime. Just as mechanics Gaston Martins and James Racer drove up to the Fifth Avenue Coach Company garage in Manhattan on January 1, 1959, two men accosted them. One hit Racer with a rubber hose, while the other snatched a box. The crooks believed that that box contained the company's $3,000 payroll. Police gave chase to a car that had sideswapped several other vehicles on the Henry Hudson Parkway. They arrested brothers Frank and John Romano for the crime against the two mechanics, 
but it turns out that they never had the $3,000 payroll that they had sought. Instead, these bumbling criminals had grabbed the wrong box. The one that they stole contained, get this, a custard pie. In our last story for today, between the years of 1981 and 1988, someone was breaking into pay telephones across the United States, and that was costing the bell system an estimated half million dollars. It was believed by investigators to have been the work of just one man, and that's because the phone locks were considered to be unpickable. And to show that he had a sense of humor, the crook always checked into cheap motels using the alias James Bell. Now, the FBI did have a general description of the man. They knew he wore eyeglasses, western-style clothing, cowboy boots, a baseball cap, and he had a long ponytail, but it really didn't help. By not staying in one location very long, you know, he stole phones from at least 24 different states, he was able to stay one step ahead of the police. Even a segment on the television show America's Most Wanted did little to help find the crook. Finally, in late August of 1988, police identified the suspect as 49-year-old James Clark of Buena Park, California, and they issued a warrant for his arrest. He really wasn't too hard to find. He just happened to be home at the time, and he offered no resistance when he was apprehended. A Pacific Bell spokesman said, quote, We are pleased that we have a suspect in custody. He's been a pain in our phones for quite a while. It turns out that Clark was a former automotive transmission machinist, and he had fashioned a lockpick out of piano wire. Through distinct scratches left on each payphone, he was definitively linked to the theft of coins from 23 telephones in Columbus, Ohio, in May and June of 1985. Clark pled guilty to one count of theft and two counts of coin machine tampering. His penalty was three consecutive one-year terms in the slammer, plus orders to reimburse Ohio Bell for $802.50. Seems kind of lenient for stealing half a million dollars, doesn't it? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find more true stories just like the one you heard on my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and in the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Please like the show on Facebook. You can find it on Facebook. Just do a quick search for Useless Information Podcast, and it should pop up. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. 
You can do that on iTunes. I just added it to Google Play at the request of a listener and probably just about any other podcasting software out there. If you know of one that I should be on, just let me know. Lastly, if you've never done so, please be sure to write some positive comments on the show page on iTunes. I'll be greatly appreciated if you've never done so. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye.